0: Hello everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Frivolous Gravitas. Uh, today we're gonna be letting Chris take the lead in a discussion about nuclear energy. Um, we will be looking at why it's probably the most uh promising uh form of energy that um we have at the moment um that goes for fission and fusion right now. Uh, fusion's been in the news a lot, but fission, even though it's about 70, almost 80, 75 years old now um, is uh, has shown a lot of innovation in the recent actual decades, but none of it has been put into place uh, due to um, some fears that were uh, in the past, frankly, quite legitimate. Um, everyone thinks of Three Mile Island. Uh, And Fukushima and, um, Chernobyl to name three. But when we look at these in comparison to other, um, natural disasters, such as, say, a coal power, uh, then we see that there's a little more to this story than we originally thought. And there's a lot more light, uh, and promise with these technologies than, um, we are not being led to believe but so then we are being i guess than we originally thought they're not the scary demons that we had um so with that we're going to go into why these technologies essentially and how they work and why we should be looking at them and seriously and kind of taking off our you know uh hats of fear and you know giving them a decent shot at uh, implementation. So with that, I'm going to let Chris uh, get the ball rolling.
1: Cool. Thank you, Jordan. And uh, welcome, everybody, to Frivolous Gravitas. I'm going to start off just by a quick overview of like what we're trying to achieve with uh, a fission reactor, like a nuclear reactor, the power plants that we're all familiar with these days. And then being that I'm not a nuclear physicist, I will do my damnedest, though, to try and walk us through the steps so that just so that we understand, not so that we like memorize it or, or that you study my words, but just to put some context around the safety issues and the environmental concerns and everything that we're going to be talking about afterwards. So to start off, um, we're talking about the smallest parts, but the energy we're getting out of these uh, reactions are based on the strong nuclear force that binds uh, atoms together and when they split, they release energy, and that energy is what we're trying to capture in the
0: form of heat. Don't you mean, sorry to interrupt, don't you mean, oh. Um, because uh, an atom is one particle made up of elementary particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons, and that's what mm-hmm. we're splitting, right? Yes. And w- which makes an atom, which when atoms come together, then you get a molecule.
1: Yes. yes I, sorry. sorry, I thought that's what I said. Uh, yeah. Bundles of atoms make molecules yeah. and bundles of molecules make. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that is correct. Yeah. So what we're doing is splitting atoms and that takes one element and then it um, produces separate elements. So either two or more other elements split off of one element. And it's the energy that's released in those, uh, those bifurcations, those splits. That's the energy that's, we're going to try and harness that heat, throw it through a heat exchanger heat up some water, water turns to steam steam turns a turbine which we're all familiar with and that's how we get power. So the idea is basically to try and sustain a chain reaction without it going overboard. so without it uh, a bomb is just a chain reaction that's completely unmitigated and it just expands and explodes. So we obviously don't want the explosion we just want sustained continual uh, degradation. And that's what the power plants do is they make those controlled reactions happen by having a very controlled environment for the atomic processes. So, um, to start then I guess, we'll, we'll talk about the simplest designs and we'll use, uh, the basic design just to explain the key concepts and why there's so many types and designs of nuclear power plants. So the simplest design is using water. And uranium. Now, the reason we use, uh, water is because it can act as both a coolant and a moderator. And it's also the heat exchanger because water is a great exchange medium for, for heat and producing steam to turn a turbine. Because water is incompressible, you can really heat it up and get a lot of energy out of it. Um, so it's, it's useful on all fronts and it keeps it really simple. And these are the earliest designs are using water like this. But the problem they ran into. Was to sustain a good fission reaction with uranium, they need to heat the water much past the boiling point, and to do that leads into the first biggest problem with all nuclear reactors of this type, uh, and all the disasters that we speak of, like Fukushima and Three Mile and and um, the other Chernobyl, yeah, uh, as our popular ones. Those all happen because of the pressurized water. So when people say there was a nuclear explosion at these plants, it's not true. <laughs> it was a gas explosion because vapor gas of water, um, when it changes phase, it, um, its volume expands by an order of magnitude. And when you compress it at three times the boiling point and then suddenly release it, it looks a lot like an explosion, releases a lot of energy, but it's not a nuclear blast by any means. It's, it's a water blast
0: right because a lot of the fear comes with because um, we've uh, nuclear um catastrophe is still kind of in the public mind um probably not so much as during the height of the cold war but um you imagine oh they're gonna put a nuclear reactor beside me and it's gonna explode and i'm gonna um i'm gonna geez, sorry my cat <laughs> um i'm gonna you know i'm gonna be it's going to be like that scene in terminator 2 or whatever um and what ends up but what ends up happening is that you know it the water do, isn't controlled properly as you say and then it's there's nothing to mediate the um the fission process and then it just then <coughs> That's, sorry, then the failure leads to the, that fission going out of control, but it just ends up releasing a bunch of radiation instead of just going.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but it's important to note that it's not the nuclear reaction that's exploding in these cases. It's the pressurized water system that's being breached. Right. And the water that's used as a coolant and the moderator and the power, all of that is is just expanding into gas and it does it with a lot of force. So it looks like a bomb, but it's not a bomb. Uh, It's nowhere near the Beirut explosion when they do happen.
0: Uh, Or the Halifax explosion if you're on Canada.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But we'll get into other safety because that's not the only safety thing, but it it is the biggest. And it's just for people being cheap and and using the oldest, earliest designs that we have that problem at all, uh, as you'll see later. Mm -hmm. So um, the earth has a lot of uranium in it. Um most of the uranium that we use for the reactors are I think 238 and 235 is the better uranium but if you use just 100% enriched uranium 235 it just uh the pro- the the fission reaction happens too quickly because fast neutrons and slow neutrons can cause fission um whereas with the 238 it, it's mostly just the slow neutrons so um, one of the key concepts we'll talk about with the design of nuclear reactors, we discussed the coolant already, um, the fuel, which is the uranium. The moderator is what slows down uh, neutrons so that, uh, so that they don't escape the process. Like you want to capture as many as possible, first of all, and you want to use as much of the fuel as possible. So with these old reactors using about 5%, I think, 1% to 5%, uh, enriched uranium to 95% to 99% uh, uh, just regular run-of-the-mill ground u- uranium. And they use that blend to kind of make sure that the slow neutrons and the fast neutrons are balanced enough that the chain reaction happens, but it doesn't escape. So basically, when you have fission, a neutron hits a uh, a uranium atom. When it splits, it decays and produces... Usually two more neutrons, sometimes three, but you get into the problem where if you have high heat, high pressure, and highly enriched uranium, then you get sort of bombs-grade or, or like weapons-grade plutonium does the same thing, where you'll get three neutrons regularly. So they'll split two more atoms every time, and it just mm. exponentially expands. So that's sort of what you want to avoid in a, in a nuclear reactor, just for, right. for regular power. So...
0: The moderator will slow down the reaction, and yeah, well, it'll, slow so yeah reaction
1: it'll slow down the neutrons, so the reaction could still be just as fast if you had a different mm-hmm. fuel source that could which we'll talk about too because thorium is a lot like that, yeah, so um only in in the case of this type of reactor does that matter, but every reactor is going to have a moderator which slows neutrons, uh, coolant fuel, and then obviously safety discharge and stuff like that. So, um, well, I'll post some infographics. Actually, I did a couple. It might be easier for the, for the listeners to get a link to some, some images, charts. Uh, but large nuclei like uranium and plutonium, they, uh, they release neutrons when they split. Like I said, those nuclei can be split by colliding with free neutrons. So if a neutron splits uranium, releasing energy and two more neutrons come out, then more uranium is split from those two, thus the chain reaction. So this is what we call critical mass, and that's when enough fissile material is present for a runaway chain reaction. So um, with that said, we'll set the stage um, such that each split of the atom from the neutron colliding with it, Uh, only takes one single neutron, but not every single time do they, do they split from a neutron collision. That's why you need two with a little bit of probability of three, because every now and then a neutron will get absorbed by the fuel rather than spit out or split. And that's just quantum mechanics probabilities. There's no real way around that. And that's sort of where a lot of the, the waste comes in from, uh, from nuclear reactions. The waste products are usually from an absorbed neutron instead of a, fission. Mm-hmm. Uh, another term we'll use is a uh, fertile material, because a lot of the reactors that we're building today are breeder reactors. And that means that the fuel source, or the blanket around the fuel source, like part of the design of the, the nuclear reactor, uh, the blanket, they call it, <clears throat> when it hits a stray neutron, it actually produces more fuel when it absorbs its uh, its neutron. So it's just another, we'll, we'll talk about it a bit more later after we get through the, more, the different designs, but just for the basic design, I'm just pointing out that there are a couple more factors, but they're not as pertinent uh, to the discussion. But fertile just means that a, uh, a neutron reaction creates more fissile material, and fissile just means that it's capable of being split when a neutron hits it. That's our fuel, because we get the energy from the split. So uranium-238 pardon the papers, is more stable than uranium-235, so it needs fast-moving neutrons to sustain its reaction. That might be in contradiction to what I just said over the top. I get the numbers confused, and like I said, that's why you shouldn't study from this. It's just to give you an idea of how things work. I'm not a uh, nuclear physicist.
0: uh, Neutronologist. (laughs) Nucleologist. (laughs) It's pronounced nuclear. Nuclear,
1: yeah. I was gonna. I meant to actually. Way to, way to do it properly. <laughs> Can't stand that. Anyway, so U two thirty eight will actually absorb thermal nucleon- uh, neutrons and convert to plutonium two thirty nine, which is also highly reactive. So that could be said to be kind of fertile in a way. Uh, enriching fuel to increase the ratio from U two thirty five to U two thirty eight is the best way. To, uh, to buck the reducing cost and waste and maximizing stable energy output. So it's not just that you want the reaction sustained. When you use cheap thermal reactors like these, they produce more waste and they don't use all the fuel. So most of the uranium that goes into these old reactors, these thermal reactors are just another word for the, the water-cooled, moderated, and powered um they're all powered by steam but the cooling and the moderation through water is specific to a thermal reactor and that's why they need to be pressurized. But enriching uranium, I guess I should explain that too. It's when you you put a uh uranium in a centrifuge and you spin it around so that all the atoms uh electrons line up to one side. So you're sort of producing a highly enriched on on the inside and then you can extract that from the the less enriched part on on the on the outside and then less enriched part on the inside. Right. Right. Spreads out centrifugal force. Yeah, yeah. Newtonian physics. Look it up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'll just describe the moderator again quickly just so it's a bit clearer because I might be kind of bouncing around here. But there's only like three or four key concepts. So if we drill these in, then we'll be able to go forward understanding better what the options and availabilities are. So the moderator in this case is water, but graphite is another common moderator, anything that slows down the bounce of uh, uh, neutrons flying around in the core. It's uh, it's used to get the most out of the uranium-235 to the uranium-238 mixture. As I said, you don't use just a purely enriched fuel because that would just be bad news. <laughs> so it's, it's usually a very small amount of the enriched stuff that you need. Um, hydrogen atoms in the water the reason why they're helpful is because they're about the same mass as the neutrons so neutrons bump into them they don't react to them they just get slowed by them it's like kind of shuffling through a crowd basically Uh, it doesn't work with all elements but you can do it with liquid metals and liquid salts and again we'll get into that in a little bit um yeah so they impede or slow neutrons in the absorption in U238 water also works as a great heat exchanger and coolant which we've already discussed. So this is currently right. called the light water thermal reactor. Most people call it just a thermal reactor. And it's one of the first that we, we decided to build because of, um, well, you'll probably know more about the history of it, but it works well in nuclear submarines because submarines are surrounded by water. <laughs> and these <laughs> things are self-contained and kind of small. They could be smaller, but the high pressure, uh, the pressurization of the water is what makes these reactors need to be so big And then you need like a containment zone around them just to make sure that if they do explode, they don't bust out people's windows and kill babies and stuff. So the problem with Three Mile Island was uh, water escaped a jammed hatch. And that's what caused the breach, which led to rapid expansion of the gas and the so-called explosion. Uh, Chernobyl was water boiling slowly. Uh, Oh. No, Chernobyl was the water boiled, and then because it boiled, it became, there was less of it to moderate the flow of neutrons, and that's what caused the escape or the breach in in the Chernobyl incident. And the Fukushima one was because the power generators that are supposed to keep the control system working um, were wiped out by the tsunami. So requiring electricity to maintain your stable non-explosive power plant is a bad idea and again we'll see that in the molten salt reactor variants because they have a passive versus an active system whereas if power gets cut off electromagnets drop the fuel rods those fuel rods go in and if it still keeps overheating a plug melts everything drains through the plug into a containment vessel and there's no explosion no runaway heat no problem yeah uh, so yeah, that said, more people die every year from air pollution caused by coal than do by power plant failures or meltdowns. So that's why when we say it's relatively safe, scientists are always very meticulous with their words and saying it's not perfectly safe. But the public yeah. perception of that is to misinterpret it, thinking that. You know, oh, well, they said it's only slightly safe, safe or relatively safe. No, it's very, 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 very safe.
0: Well, once there was one statistic I came across that like more people have died putting up solar reactors falling off roof, not solar solar panels, than have died in all of the nuclear incidents combined. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one.
1: So, um, and there's another one uh, the asthma caused by even natural gas, which burns relatively cleanly. Uh, mm-hmm. The asthma alone caused by natural gas has killed more people than all of the nuclear power plants breakdowns combined. And those power plant breakdowns or failures were entirely preventable had they just not been cheap in the design.
0: Right. Well, and the Soviet Union was um, very uh, renowned for their, uh, you know, their miserliness with yes. regard to... <clears throat> infrastructure. So <laughs> and they're not very adventurous with new designs either, because there's an
1: expense involved and time fixing un- unforeseen problems. But I mean in the long term it's really worth it. But when you elect a new president every four years, there is no such thing as a long term plan.
0: Right. That's well we can get into um also uh with that um that can we can get into um uh Sorry, my brain is... No, no problem. Right. I was just um, going to
1: go into the, the molten salts and molten metals just to, <clears throat> to describe the difference between the thermal and the nut.
0: And then I think right I can go from there. Yeah. So, with a normal reactor, essentially what it seems like to me, so let me just try and lame in it for anybody, is that you have um, radioactive rods or material in a rod, and then you dump it in a... Um, you dump it in a pool of water, which it'll heat up. And then, because one of the things is, you know, you have this big building and or this, you know, container or this, you know, thing. It's got that, you know, evil looking symbol on it. Big smokestacks. Yeah, some giant smokestacks. And then what happens is you start to think of this again, like a car or something. It's this magical thing. But all that's happening is that you're just using something different to heat up the water. It's the same way that we produce Uh, energy from coal, you heat up water with the coal. It's just this method of heating up water is just way more efficient than any other method we have at the present moment. It, you get more in, uh, you get more out than you put in. The problem is it's a lot more complicated because, you know, there's a lot more science involved than just light the rocks on fire. Um, so yeah, but that's um, bound to be
1: the case with any complex system
0: right so what happens is um you you get the, the that heat you're turning you know this uh, atomic energy into well, these atomic reactions the energy in that and which heats up which tra- is transferred into the water which then is transferred into kinetic energy in a turbine which is transferred into um you know it's like a, a magneto which you know changes that into electricity, which then sends it out. It's a lot more complicated than that, but that's it. It's not much more complicated
1: than that, though. That's that's pretty bang on. And And the thing is, the fuel source only needs to be these tiny pellets because we're talking about like atoms splitting atoms, right? Right. And that's one of the benefits to it. And the fact that we're using water to power the steam, it just acts like a normal heat exchanger like a radiator heater does. A radiator heater is a heat exchanger from a hot metal pipe to the air in your room. It's the same thing, but it's just water on both sides.
0: So to me, what makes it complicated are one, in the Soviet union, you want, we want to power all of nation. So they just make them huge and we don't care, build, put them up, put them up, put them up. I don't care in America you say, Oh, we like power, but you know, there's already an industry. So we'll, we'll tentatively go into this. Um, same with Canada in the sixties and seventies, where just, they wanted to build 22 of these. I think one of them is still online, um, because of the backlash, which we will get into, but what happened in the West here, um, was, um, that you get, um, like, don't want to sound like a complete libertarian, but you get a lot of government interference saying, oh, no, now you need to do this. You need this safety procedure. You need that safety procedure. What happens is you end up with a stunted development process. So now we're stuck with these reactors that we're talking about is technology that was designed in the 50s and we we are have it in our head that these are the only reactors that we can use this is nuclear technology we need to get fission right or fusion right because fission is a it's a lost technology it doesn't work well the problem is is that you haven't you i mean like we- they <laughs> we haven't been innovating on this and probably been going back because uh the since the 50s because you know, we haven't been, there hasn't been allowed to because innovation in this field is very, very expensive. They, essentially, what you have to do is to get a nuclear reactor approved in the States, um, you have to have the entire thing approved. You can't make any changes along the construction process because, you know, there's safety procedure. It has to be exactly as it is. So, what happens is even if you learn something, you can't implement your new knowledge from the construction into that new one e- to make it more effective. You have to settle for, um, 10 year old technology or 15 year old technology. Cause that's how long it takes to actually build one of these things. So, um, and that's
1: one of the biggest drawbacks too, is that because they're so complex and what we're doing is again, controlling a nuclear reaction. That that's insanely complicated, but once it's built, it works. That's right. the thing. But it's the cost, the upfront costs are uh, like 15 to 20 years before you get paid back on them. Whereas if you put up a wind turbine, it starts making you money the next year. Or if you put up a coal Theory. plant in three years, it starts making you, well, it yeah. starts making it back. I'm not saying it's a yeah. net profit, but you get nothing while it's being built. Like absolutely nothing comes out of a, nu- a nuclear power plant for like 10 straight years. Whereas mm-hmm. everything else that you can build it, you'll start generating power within three to five
0: but the innovations we're going to be talking about and chris is going to be about to get into i'm going to just a nice little segue for you (laughs) is that um some of these innovations make it cheaper easier smaller more portable uh than you know this big you know uh, you know multi-football field spanning you know eyesore on the horizon so Mm -hmm. why don't you talk about how what we've learned in the last well, the, know, 50 the funny years. thing is, we
1: learned this at the same time, roughly speaking, as we learned how to do these thermal reactors with the pressurized water. Like we learned mm. the better way right away. We just never built them, and it, and it's not like some under the under the table or back room guy who nobody knew. The guy who invented the the other process, Alvin Weinberg, also said that wait, there's a better way. Do this, and they just didn't. So I'll get into the other thing that uh, Weinberg suggested we do right from the start back in, like, what, 1955 or something. Uh, I've got the date in my notes somewhere, so I'll probably stumble across it during the show. But um, So molten metals and molten salts are what we're looking at now. And again, the big thing about the size of the reactors was the pressure. So once we don't need the pressure anymore, we can have smaller reactors, first of all. Second of all, they won't explode when they breach. Molten salts will act as your coolant. Um, and that means, I mean, it's kind of weird to think about it, but when you melt a salt or, or lead or something like that, when you get liquid lithium, liquefied metal, you can use that to cool a reactor that runs hotter. The hotter reactor core is going to give you much better power efficiency for the fuel you put in. So point number one, way less nuclear waste. Uh, point number two to that, Is operating at higher temperatures is more efficient, so you get more power for the space, which is a huge plus if you're building these giant monstrosities that cost like billions of dollars. Um, They remain liquid, but at a breach, once they're released into natural air or they cool, they harden, so they actually solidify and self contain in the event of a nuclear meltdown, catastrophic failure, worst thing you can imagine somebody bombs the thing and it just busts open. All the nuclear. Or all the um, the molten salts and metals that are used to circulate the system and keep it running will just harden and freeze, and it'll be a mess to clean up. But it's not like it's going to get into the air into a a vapor. Right, and
0: even if some, and even if a few neutrons do exit, uh, exit, it's probably um, so. Like during the, I don't know how quickly molten uh, salt or uh, whichever salt they're using here would. um, I don't know how quickly. This molten salt wood thing, but by the, it's not gonna let all the neutrons out like you know if you watch Chernobyl, you know it cracks open and all the neutron streams just come like all the neutrons are just flowing out of the reactor.
1: Yeah, and it's radioactive water too, and that water is airborne. Whereas these hmm. molten salts will never be airborne because a they're heavy and b they'll solidify and they'll contain all of that nuclear waste inside of the uh, right.
0: So this is what you mean by a passive system. It does it automatically as part of the system itself. And you can, and with a passive system, so, you know, oh no, it got hit by a truck and now it's broken reactor and everyone's and you end up with just an oh no instead of a you know oh yeah. well i guess this is it um but then people actively have to prevent a fail like a worse failure right so that's so the on, top of a, a passive on top system. of a really good passive system you can have you know whatever active systems you want you can redundant you can make that redundant so yeah you would in effect, in effect whatever safety procedures you want would be Um, just icing on the cake. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't do that. Of course, we should do that. Mm -hmm. We should make these as um, safe as possible. But we should also, you know, we don't want to start wrapping them in bubble tape just because more safe is better. It's like, no, at some point, you have to measure safety as an expense. And at some point, if you're saying, okay, this makes it 0.0001 millionth of a percent more safe, it's like... We're, uh, let's not spend our money on that. Let's start spending our money on uh, the you know plugging it into things or something or new. Uh. But the thing
1: is, with this design, you'd actually run out of ideas to even be more redundant because it, it mm-hmm. already self-contained. There's nothing you can do to hard metal to make it harder and more metal. Like <laughs> it's already the thing that you're trying to do. Once well, you run into breach, new problems. The breach is going to be more dangerous. The bomb that hits your reactor is going to cause more harm than the reactor exploding from it. Because well, my thought is is
0: that um, theft becomes a problem because <laughs> uh, these things are now small.
1: Well, they're not that so, small. They're still seventy five feet high and like fifteen feet okay. wide.
0: So I, I I keep hearing upon when I'm and I was doing some you know amateur uh, research when I was reading essentially uh, that these a lot of people are saying that these things can be made to be um, very very small now. They can be, but they're less efficient. You want that really
1: high heat, and to get that high heat, you need your containment vessel to be able to sustain that high heat. So it has to be a really thick containment vessel and, like, super heavy. Okay. It is possible. I'm not saying it's not possible. It's just it's not feasible. It would be way easier for them to just build their own centrifuge and mine their own uranium than to steal one. So Plus they're um, in and there's water everywhere. Liquid metal is kind of hard to move. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, so
0: yeah, carry on. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. No,
1: no, no, no. I'm glad you're, um, you're helping me. You're helping me think.
0: Uh, where was I though? Uh, we were talking about molten salt reactors.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. So the other thing is um, with the safety precautions, not just in the event of a breach without the pressurized system being capable of exploding. You also have the added effect that because you're running a really high nuclear, re- high temperature nuclear reactor, uh, the thing that was preventing us from running more efficient, higher heat was the water that we were using. But when you use a liquidified metal, um, the molten salt, uh, uh, they can run at higher temperatures. But that also means that if they, in the event of a chain reaction or critical mass and it, and it goes too hot, uh, in a meltdown event, the plug at the bottom of the, the core will melt itself. So the plug melts from overheating and then drains into a containment vessel underground. So absolutely no t- chance of contaminating the air or the earth or anything because that containment vessel is going to be built. To, all it does is cool things down. And once the fuel's out from, from the liquid metal, then there's no neutrons to produce more reactions. So there's no more heat being produced and it just, it, it calms itself down. That's again, part of the passive safety features of this type of reactor design. And, uh, Alvin Weinberg was like insistent on this part alone being enough of a factor to, to sh- stray away from the high pressurized thermal reactors in favor of the molten salt reactors. So, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about waste before we talk about thorium, just so that we get the basics covered first, because I think it'll be easier right. to.
0: Because one of the things that keeps coming up when we talk about um, nuclear power is, well, what do we do with the waste? I don't want that. Like, you know, you can't get rid of that. You know that there's nothing we can do. All you can do is, you know, bury it in the sand somewhere and then it's just going to pollute that area. Or we can like, like it's expensive to shoot it into the sun, which I think would be awesome. Um, <laughs> but um or like send it to Jupiter. I don't know, but like, but if you
1: can get we, nuclear powered propulsion to push it into the sun, it might be feasible to do it. You know what I mean? Right.
0: But at the same time, they like I do agree that that mentality of oh, "we'll just throw it away" um, is like I, I tend to even do that on my small scale, like in my house. So I'll just be like this is organic i can mulch it and turn it into soil and grow things in it why would i waste it i don't want to just not useful so i'm gonna throw it away and i don't i personally don't like that mentality um because i'm kind of a closet tree hugger but um at the same time um i think that that mentality also shows a lack of you know Uh, creative thinking. Like we have this material and it's, we're going to have a lot of it. What can we do with it? Let's put some thought into that. And I think a lot of people have. Um, So, but again, that was only
1: ever an issue because we used the wrong reactor design. Like we chose the reactor that only uses 1% of its fuel. So we're going to have more waste. (laughs) And that, that was just because of wartime mentality and nearsightedness, like political myopia, as I call it
0: well and a lot of like around the time that um this uh where is his name i got him here um, weinberg um when he was he became um director of the laboratory in 1955 um the world had just seen um about 10 years previous two nuclear uh, attacks on civilian populations and It had in its mind as a, um, the Korean War had just ended where tactical nuclear weapons were a viable strategy of offense um, on, um, like, uh, armies and bases and whatnot. Mutually assured destruction. Yeah. Now, had the, it's almost, um, one of the things that almost probably saved us during the Korean War. You know, argue in the comments, but the fact that the Russians had nuclear weapons saved the world from a nuclear war because the Americans might have used them again, um, in the Korean war against the, uh, North Korean and Chinese troops. So, uh, but nobody would have been able to retaliate, but that would have also you know that's the use of nuclear weapons in war. We don't want to get used to doing that. Uh, and we're pointing that's how at them you at feed a- terrorism for generations. Right. So what ended up happening, and rightly in people's minds, is that they became afraid of nuclear um, stuff, but they didn't know what they were afraid of. And this we see this today. People don't understand the things they're afraid of. There's things that even when you do understand, there are you can still be afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that nuclear weapons are one of them, but nuclear reactors, um, you were cast in the same mold as that. So they like nuclear reactors can explode and we can, it'll just be like, you know, I don't want my town to become another, uh, Hiroshima.
1: Yeah. And but, that's like comparing a controlled, sustained reaction that's built to go slowly with something that's built to expand as quickly as possible,
0: like right. apples to oranges. How, how can we release as much energy as possible? Well, <laughs> Let's just put a bunch of TNT in a steel case. The (laughs) the
1: fears are legitimate, but they're not relatively sound. And that's sort of what I want to dispel today uh, in talking about nuclear waste. Because first of all, like I said, the thermal reactors only use 1%. So that creates 99% of all that you bring into the factory comes out as waste. That's Mm -hmm. ridiculous, first of all. Second of all, part of the byproduct, like sometimes when those neutrons are absorbed, uh, rather than causing fission and energy, if they're absorbed by the uranium neutri- um, atom, they, they convert to plutonium, which is also a fissile material. So rather than creating weapons, which is the main reason they stuck with this design is because they were going to use the, the byproducts to create weapons with it which we don't want more nukes. But that's why we have such a huge nuclear arsenal is because we chose a design that was ready to create plutonium for us. Right. But you could use that plutonium in a reactor right next door and create more energy with it. So the nuclear waste that everybody's worried about is caused by our ignorance. It's not inherent to nuclear power. It's caused by the fact that we wanted to produce weapons. That's the reason we have these inefficient designs.
0: And now that we're slowly, you know, getting rid of a lot of these with a lot of taking a lot of effort, but it's a well, there's international
1: caused. agreements to deproliferate. Yeah. I don't know what the so,
0: word for that is, but but yeah, nuclear proliferation treaties is yeah. a bunch of them, but they're and, trying to
1: deproliferate, they're doing the opposite. Yeah.
0: yeah. And so, what um, proliferation that's what it is. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what was happening? Well, I guess. The standard way of dealing with this waste is, I don't know, sticking it into bullets or something uh, for the A tens. But um, the um, essentially what they do is like they put it in drums and then put those like full of they stick it in like concrete and then put those into drums and then bury it deep in the ground. But is that the only way of dealing with this? That's actually
1: the worst way. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, water is a fantastic containment and you don't want Mm. to pollute your water sources with it. But the reason why like the Europeans dropped it in the ocean wasn't just to get rid of it out of sight, out of mind. Water is actually a really good place to store nuclear waste because then the nuclear radioactive byproducts don't escape the tin can that you put it in. Mm -hmm. So even though they're leaking and stuff in the ocean, it could be a lot worse. They could be leaking into soil, and soil is naturally porous. So it, it spreads, and contamination is very very hard to contain once it's in soil because you have to dig up all the soil all the way around the contaminated area Mm -hmm. and that's extremely expensive and very energy intensive so you're going to use a power plant to produce more power to contain the the nuclear waste produced by the power plant so it's a it's a negative feedback cycle
0: right but is there is there any like we have i'm assuming like there's different wastes for different types of reactors um Is there any uses for these materials that we know of? There
1: is, but the easiest way to avoid it is just to make less of it. Don't produce (laughs) 99% of waste from your fuel. Secondly, you can recycle it. So take the fuel that is spent and radioactive. You can put that into another reactor and create more power, and then its fuel will be smaller because you've extracted energy from it all this time. So the waste then gets reduced by reusing it. Another factor to consider is um, the half-life of the byproducts. So in a thermal reactor, you're creating half-life products that have like 300,000 year light time to decay. So they're radioactive and dangerous for like 300,000 years. Whereas if you use a thorium reactor, you create so much less byproduct, and we'll get into that in just a minute after we talk about waste here. But it it creates so much less byproduct. And the byproducts that it does create only have a half-life between 100 to 400 years, which is a long time. But, I mean, a concrete structure can last 400 years. So you can put it underground safely and it'll never bother you in a a cave or an abandoned mine or something like that. You just fit the mine to to suit it. You don't just dump it into a dirt hole. But I think Finland or something's doing a huge storage facility right now underground. It's like a 10-year plan or maybe it's Norway. I can't remember exactly. Maybe you can look that up while I describe yeah. thorium. <laughs> So but There's a huge um, underground storage facility that's being built out in Europe right now.
0: Okay. One of the, I came across this that essentially says that they can, a lot of what's happening is they're recycling 97% uh, of, or 94% of um, what's going on. And then uh, they the rest, the 4% are immobilized by mixing them with glass through a process called vitrification. So hmm. these guys aren't like, they're not just dumping it in the ground. And they're they they know what they're doing. They're not just being like, "Oh, don't need this anymore. Let's just dump it." So they did used to to do that,
1: and the Russians, I'm pretty sure, did that. But we don't anymore because this isn't 1960.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So we can't just say like just we can't just be righteously indignant about this. So. um, But that
1: said, the waste isn't nearly as big an issue as people are making it out to be. So, like, the waste product that we release into the air from coal. Is thousands of times more deadly and, um, voluminous, voluminous than, yeah. uh, nuclear waste. Like all of the nuclear waste we've ever had from make, even all this dirty nuclear fuel that was spent, everything the world has produced in the, in the, in the sense of nuclear waste would go a football field, like an American football field, 20 feet high stacked. It's a lot, but it's like a hundred years of industrialization and that's it. Twenty feet right. high, one football field. Now, because we're getting energy from atoms, not from blocks.
0: <laughs> now, one of the thing when, like the so like London, for example, during the height of the Industrial Revolution, in the Victorian period, and up to about the 1960s, was you know just burning coal constantly, wooden coal, and what was happening is you get a lot of you know asthma. You get a lot of COPD. You get a lot of everything. You, you fibrosis. Get, you get like congenital disorders. You get like heightened um, psychological uh, conditions. You and get all the contamination
1: this stuff. of your water sources from the plant because the plant uses chemicals and water to make that fuel and to clean right. our equipment and to extract coal.
0: So, like the the London fogs were, um, they were these toxic um, smogs that were going around because they're. Like people were dying just breathing in the air. And now you get this in places like Beijing nowadays and all the, um, industrialized, uh, third world, like in China and India and Indonesia, who are, um, burning this stuff and not caring about the consequences of that because, you know, you, it's, it's, it's just air. You can't, there's no concrete block that you're saying, oh, this is dangerous waste. But if there's one concrete block, but if, if you, what you have in these industrialized centers that aren't caring about what they're burning, you have, you know, s- thick smog covering an entire mega city, which, which is causing damage to, you know, millions of people all at once. Not uh, to mention and,
1: climate change and the right. the jet streams taking it across continents. Like it doesn't just go away. It stays in the atmosphere. No. Like you'll find it in the glacial uh, glaciers. Even in Sweden and and stuff, which is really cool, yeah. kind of. So
0: <laughs> that's um, this is that like coal is definitely more of a problem, and like clean coal, like whatever. Even if it is clean, it's not cleaner than this will be. And even
1: coal, if they we need- were the same, though, I'd rather a ton of radioactive waste on a pallet than a ton mm. in the air that's just circulating, and I'm breathing. Like exactly. It's way better to have it concentrated and controlled and contained. to have it just dispersed into the atmosphere
0: right and wind and solar are they just the efficiency numbers just can't compete with either of them so you know what do we do well we have an answer right here Mm -hmm. and to that end what is thorium (laughs) (laughs) um okay well
1: we'll get into that right now then um so we're going to be talking about fast reactors compared to thermal reactors, and they work kind of similarly, but they're kind of confusing just by the, the nomenclature. So a fast I'm reactor works quicker because it can use those fast neutrons. You don't need as much of a, a moderator, but also because they operate at higher heat, they're more efficient just inherently by the spectrum of heat output if you look at the charts and graphs of how energy is produced from fission. Um, so you try to burn... You can try to burn more fuel, including like U-238. And uh, it creates actinides just the same, or actinides is just another way of the saying the byproduct of the waste. You can create actinides from neutron ex- absorption while releasing energy. And this is done by reducing moderator and coolant demands using molten salts or metal um, at low pressures instead of at high pressures like you need to, to keep water in a liquid state while you're over overheating it. So if you keep water in a state overheated, the most you can put it at is about three to four hundred degrees Celsius um, without needing more than like seventy atmospheres of pressure, which is enough to make those explosions when they breach. But when you don't have that pressurized um pressurization necessity on there, you can run at the most efficient rate of fission reactions, which is closer to the five, six hundred degree range. And you can do it safely because any containment breach will instantly cool from the air and harden and solidify like we talked about before. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the freeze plugs, which will melt and drain if there is a a meltdown event or some problem. Um, The (laughs) way thorium reactors work is slightly different than even just regular fast reactors. But I want to focus on thorium just A for the time and B for... It's the most effective method that we have so far that's known, uh, unless ITER works. Because a fusion reaction works, then we might even have to skip all this. But in my opinion, you should probably have more than one source of power anyway. So,
0: yeah, uh, I'll get into the thorium reaction process. It's it'd be good to have both tools in our belt. Um, like the the fusion does seem promising, and I'm. Actually, everything I hear about it is seems very, um, uh, I'm tentatively optimistic as I uh, want to say, but, um, the thing is that we have a technology that we can use right now. We can build it. We can, we can break ground tomorrow. Um, there's probably people who've been chomping at the bit with, you know, their papers going like, Oh, I've got the plans right here. I want to talk to the politicians in the in every country. You know, there's just some physicist in, sitting in his room going like, ah. <laughs> so, um, we do need to keep throwing money into fusion because that's what we do. That's the and future it, of the future. It, yeah. <laughs> so, we need to keep pushing forward just because we have something just doesn't like. Uh, but you'll still need power to
1: create power, right? Like we're going to need mm-hmm. The trucks that do the mining for all the metals and rare earths and stuff that build fusion reactors are going to need to be powered somehow. We might as well have them electrically powered by another reactor that produces less waste. You know, until we build nothing but fusion reactors in a few thousand years or whatever it takes because they're really complicated. Again, it's like another order of magnitude more expensive to build these fusion reactors than it is to build regular fission reactors, but that's just mm -hmm. because they're new. Like, you refine processes and you make modulation and you you compartmentalize everything into small chunks so that it's manageable to do at scale. But first you have to build it, <laughs> and then you have to solve all the problems from building it, and that just takes time. But with Thorium, we could do it today, like you said. Um, we have all all the data we need. We've done all the prototypes. We've planned it for years. We've had scientists actually producing energy with these things. And if it weren't for them being silenced uh, through NASA back in like the 70s or whatever, when they built the ERB... I can't remember the name of it, but uh, ERB-1, I think, something like that. Uh, So, yeah, we talked about the safety. Uh, Thorium works in the same way as all these other uh, molten salt and metal reactors in the sense that they got the freeze plug and they've got uh, um, low pressure, higher heat for better efficiency and all that. It's passive, so it's like walk away safety. You can build them small and modular because they you don't have the pressurization requirements that you have with the, the thermal reactors with just water. Um, the safety, an additional safety measure of these is they have, uh, as I sort of mentioned to earlier or alluded to earlier, um, in the event of a power outage or a tsunami or something like that, uh, the moderators that are suspended inside the, the reactor core that, uh, help sustain the fission reaction process. They're held on by electromagnets. So when the power gets cut, these magnets lose their magnetic strength. They drop the moderator into the core and then it helps the core not overheat because it's slowing down the process. You're not regulating anymore. You're just flooding it with regulator, <laughs> moderator. So that, that safety system alone, but in, in tandem with the molten salt and the low pressure and the freeze plug, we've already got four redundancies that work better than the best redundancies we have on the current thermal reactors. So I just, I really want to point out how much safer it is <laughs> than the reactors we're already building because it's insane that people are comparing them to nuclear explosions when they, it's just really frustrating to me. Anyway, so um, yeah, we have hundreds of them worldwide, bunch of prototypes, some research facilities, they work um, there's no question that they work there's tons of documentation I've got some sources I'm going to list in the description for you if you want to check it out China's been really good at checking into this actually they've uh, some of the easiest information to find has been through China believe it or not because the government of the states has been suppressing it for so long it took Kirk Sorensen to sort of be a whistleblower because he used to work for NASA so when they released the paper to NASA employees and He's the one that spread it out to the public saying, hey,
0: everybody should see this. Why are we hiding it? Yeah. Well, China wants to look smart. So, they'll be like, oh, look, we know what we're talking about here is a bunch of papers. So
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is, they're forward thinking. Like, they've got a dictator who can actually think 20 and 30 years down, down the line. And he wants to be remembered as, like, a genius leader, right? And to do that, you need to make big plans, but they have to make sense,
0: Yeah, Um, like invade Taiwan.
1: (laughs) To the Chinese people, that makes sense because they think it's theirs already, but I I don't even want to get into that. Yeah, I know. So for light water reactors to run efficiently, they need about 70 atmospheres of pressure, like I sort of mentioned before. Uh, 250, 300 degrees Celsius. uh, Fukushima Daiichi was a gas explosion, yada, yada. I think we covered all that mostly. Mostly. Uh, Mostly. (laughs) Mostly. Oh yeah, that's the other benefit too. Uh, molten salts and metal, I told you that they can run at higher heat, which is more efficient, but they also have a higher range of heat that they can operate in. So even if there is an issue or an error, you have much more time to react to it because you've got like a thousand degrees Celsius range of acceptable temperature as opposed to just like 50 degrees exploding the cap on your pressurized vessel through the water right. thermal reactors. So fast reactors are not only more efficient, produce less waste, they're safer times four, but they also give you more time to react to a ca- ca- catastrophic failure, which is like just more than enough reason to pursue, in my opinion. But um, we talked a bit about the waste and the drain tanks. So if you want, I'm gonna, I'm gonna maybe just post a link to some of these graphics, and they're just sort of like the breakdown of how uh, thorium splits or becomes other other products through the fission right. reaction but I'll explain it briefly just because there's a point of note on here to state about um the weaponization of the byproducts whereas the other nuclear reactors their um actinides the the waste one of them was plutonium from when it uh the uranium absorbs a neutron instead of splitting from it and that could be cre- uh couldn't be used to create weapons so they can weaponize the waste whereas with thorium it first converts itself Upon, um, taking in one neutron, it splits into two or sometimes three, um, other neutrons to sustain the reaction. But the thorium itself becomes protectanium 232. And then that degrades after about 30 days to, uh, uranium 232. And then that degrades to thorium 228 and then thallium 208 and then down to plutonium 208, which is not useful. Um, the, the, plut- the uranium-232 is really important, though, because that lasts about 70 years, I believe, and that impedes weaponization of production of bombs and stuff. So it's not just that it can't be used for it, but if there's even trace amounts of it in your waste product that you're trying to repurpose into a nuclear warhead, it'll actually prevent the warhead from functioning properly unless they, they separate it and chemically... Um, distill it out, which is, again, labor intensive. They might as well just make their own enriched uranium. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's not even worth stealing, basically. But this only happens through the thorium reaction chain. It doesn't happen through the straight uranium or the water or plutonium chains. So thorium right. has the added benefit of being less weaponizable, if that's a word. Uh, the protactanium, one of the downsides of thorium, though, is that you have to wait 30 days for it to, to decay into the useful u- uranium-233. But not such a big deal, because once you've got modular or scalable operation, you just have one tank every week sitting yeah. there fermenting, basically. It's kind of like a brewery. So that would only power. be a
0: problem for the first month. Yeah. It- and then, so it was like, but that's, that's, so it's one month. That's it. When it so takes you can,
1: 15 years to build the facility, it takes one yeah. month to start. And then you, yeah, you can have it show
0: that. up a month early. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> or you can have really... it sitting there waiting
1: even while the thing's still being built. And then if you don't use it, you don't use it. Whatever you just re enrich it if you need to, like, yeah. Um, so the fission products that you can use from the thorium chain reaction. Uh, You'll get sometimes an absorption and sometimes the neutron will split and produce two more neutrons to uh, keep going. So it's uranium-233, 235, 238, plutonium-239, and plutonium-241. Don't have to memorize that all. I'm just describing the fact that you're getting fuel out as your waste product even after you've produced energy. You mm-hmm. use that to produce more energy, so it's it's sort of like eating to get fuel into your body, and then eating your poop again, <laughs> to put it grossly.
0: It's kind of that 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 one scene in The Martian where he's taking all their um, he's taking all the the crew's uh, solid waste and using that to. Um, That's a much better analogy, yes. It's like fertilizer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Night soil. Uh, Don't use it, (laughs) only in an emergency. Um, So what we have here are viable alternatives Um, and um, to me this sounds like win-win-win because you have, well, I'm living in Alberta and everyone's talking about oil and whatnot. And I I'm not against oil. One of the reasons I'm not against oil is oil is not going away because plastics are infinitely useful. Um, you know, yeah. anything that's oil-based, just, you know, we don't like the idea of um, just putting oil waste into the air, but, you know, we have tons of oil-based products that are um, better cheaper easier because we use plastics um, like not everything needs to be carved wood or stamped metal or something Um and so the oil industry is not going to go away it might shrink but the other thing is is that if you're worried about oh you know i work i don't want to lose my job this will create new industries um every day so you know some people need to build those reactors we need more engineers new engineers who understand this stuff differently we need um You know recycling nuclear waste uh is an entire industry in itself Mm -hmm. um you know we this is going to um you know you build a nuclear reactor in a town and that town now has its own industry when you know it's not sleepy anymore um so and from these so you're not getting rid of all the thing now maybe coal might hit the road but like we're not going to be burning it in that amount. So what's the problem there is, you know, we're still going to use coal for like coal furnaces and cook pizzas, but that's like not even a half of a percent of the coal usage, but the industries will be there. And, They'll actually build even more
1: industries. Mm -hmm. They'll need more teachers to teach more people to have highly educated jobs. Thorium comes from the dirt everywhere on the planet, so there's no scarcity. You don't need to ship it across the world. You don't need to refine it or anything like that in out-local places. All Mm -hmm. of your local jobs for the entire nuclear process here, for nuclear power generation, can be done locally. That includes cool. right down from the mining all the way up to watching the systems. And instead of pumping oil on a rig in the middle of BF nowhere, getting you know, risking losing life and limb and braving the cold, your job will be to sit in a in a facility that passively safeties itself. Right. You'll get paid and the same amount of money to sit there and watch a machine not fuck up.
0: Well and the efficiency of this will allow us to engage in um new um because uh, there's been a few technologies that we also have that unfortunately need um, large amounts of efficient electricity generation, and one of the first one that comes to mind is desalinization. Mm-hmm. That's a huge. So one. right now, in places like um, Chile uh, and all over the Arab world and you know Saharan Africa, the problem is getting water because there just isn't any. So if you're by the coast, what you do is you desalinate the ocean so this gives you two things this gives you water and salt but the thing that you need to do to change this to you know make this reactor is to add energy uh this chemical reaction is to add energy to it and that's where the whole process becomes prohibitively cost uh uh, the, the cost of it becomes prohibitive so when you have a nuclear reactor in town uh then it ends up like you you have this constant stream of cheap electricity coming in. You can now fuel, uh, you can now bring cheap water to, um, you know, cities and countries that would not have had that right now. Um, like Dubai is spending, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars on energy for their desalinization when they don't, need to. They can do it cheaper. And And the biggest thing to
1: that is irrigation. Because once people can irrigate their land with so much abundance of fresh water, they can farm Mm. for themselves. And then you're not sending food from over another country all the way to you and burning all that fuel and transportation. Like It's all these compounding effects of having a localized economy that help it.
0: Or how about this? Hi, uh, mixed, we have these new LED lights mixed with, um, a constant power source. Uh, now you can do hydroponics cheaply mm-hmm. and effectively without with, uh, and efficiently. And there's not as much, um, what do you call that stuff? Um. Uh, Way inefficiency in the in 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 the realm of um, thermal waste. So just heat, you know, build up Um, because the heat, the energy needs to go somewhere. But you still need the power, and the the light bulbs aren't going to be exuding as much heat anymore because you know they don't need to. It's just the nature of how those light bulbs work. So now we have this other industry, this new farming technology, where we don't have to use up. All the land uh, we can, you know, build down or build up, and just have all oh, that skyscraper is full of farms. Yeah, and uh, and it now, would be feasible. Yeah, it's completely feasible now. All we need is the energy. And um, the so, other big
1: thing along that line too is carbon capture. I like was just the, thinking that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. sorry.
0: I'll let you. Yeah, no, go on because you are Sorry, it, I get so. so
1: into this stuff because it just drives me crazy. They're not already doing it, but like carbon yeah. capture, if we want to reduce emissions and we can't find ways to do it. Even if you build this power plant, you can use that power to reduce um, carbon in the air. So not only is it not producing carbon, now it's reducing the carbon that's already in the air, trapping mm. from other nations or even from your own country if you really have to. So you've got farming, irrigation, potable water. You've got better jobs that are easier to do that pay just the same. You've got a higher educated population. And from all of that, you get a a locally sustainable economy that doesn't rely on imports from other countries. You're not Mm -hmm. shipping stuff across the ocean and, you know, wheat to Italy from Canada. Like when you think about it, that's pretty crazy. All they need is power so that they have more water so they can grow it themselves.
0: Yeah. And, and the, and like carbon capture needs energy because you are, You are taking it out of the air. And so the thing that you need to put into it is energy to have that change to have that chemical reaction happen. You're changing something. Uh change needs energy. And I think it's um, even
1: just a pump. Like it's reverse osmosis
0: of the air. Right. And then but there and we have so much use for carbon. Like Mm -hmm. and if we just pull out of the air, you have these carbon farms and then you have all this carbon that you can do whatever with. Like people- Graphite, we need.
1: nanotubes, you can make moderator out of it. <laughs> make diamonds, uh, whatever you want. Like parts we for your carbon. facility can be built out of the waste that you pull up the air.
0: Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Now, the other thing is, is that um, with these facilities that produce more on less land, what happens is we have less need for the land that we're using. And then we can let nature reclaim a lot of the land that we no longer need to, you know, set aside like huge, you know, multi-football field areas for parking lots and and solar farms, um, which are nice and they feel good to make and they're great. And, you know, my energy comes from the sun, but they're not efficient. It's not a – you're not getting what you want out of it. And wind farms feel good, but – they take. There's a lot of oil that goes into making those things, and they're not clean. Um, and they're good. Like they're good. They're good. It's not bad. We do need the energy, but it's not. It's not a. It's not a solution. Um, so, and hydro is not
1: really a solution either when we're dealing with climate change because the problem with hydro dams is if you need the power but there's not enough water in the reservoir. You sacrifice one for the other, right? So it's more sustainable and easier access to have a dam than to have wind or um, solar, granted, but only marginally so. You still need nuclear power as a stable backup to when your dams, you don't want to empty them.
0: Well, the problem is that with hydro, like it seems like it's an ecological good, but it does a lot of uh, ecological damage. On top of that, if you look at something like, um, so you create this lake. Behind the, the the dam and it, it kind of messes up the thing. Okay, well nature will get over that. You're still okay. You're killing a lot of fish as they go through. Okay, that's a little bad. Okay, but the problem is, is that what happens when something like Lake Mead at the um at the 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 Hoover Dam dries up? And if you look at pictures of Lake Mead, you can see where the water used to be, and then you can see like you know tens of meters down where mm. the water is now. How long is the Hoover Dam going to be viable in a drought area as a hydroelectric dam when there's no, you know, hydro? The
1: Yangtze so, River is a really good example and so is the Nile in Egypt.
0: Yes, like, the Aswan Dam and the Three Gorges Dam yeah. are um like they they the the Yangtze River is not the idyllic spot that you think it is anymore because of the Three Gorges Dam. And uh let's just Hope that and the hundreds stay- of
1: thousands of people who got displaced to, to feed it.
0: Yeah, and they're building another dam on the Nile, I believe, where it's already. Yeah, done. Ethiopia is still fighting with uh, Sudan, and that was it. Yeah, uh, Egypt about it. So, um, the, you you get these things, and they have massive impacts that you can see from space um, on the. Uh, on the ecology of the land that you build it on. Um, now, Manitoba, I know where I'm from, has a lot of hydroelectric dams, um, especially in the uh, central eastern portion of the um, province, because they have so many rivers. There's just you know hundreds and hundreds of rivers. Manitoba is it's, it's just got tons. A dearth and of what happened? Water. A dearth and but that area of Manitoba has to suffer for that now. Um, so uh, where can we, well, uh, I, th- I think I've beaten this horse a bit, but where can we go from I think here? it's
1: really important. That the ecological benefits to nuclear power, a lot of people are denying nuclear power because of a perceived nucle- uh, ecological loss. Mm-hmm. And that's just patently false in my opinion. Again, I'm not a nuclear physicist or anything, but the nuclear physicist that I read it's not like I'm going out searching for my bias. I have no inclination whatsoever. I'm I just Right. information that I find, and that's all I can find is that there aren't uh, net negative nuclear benefits relative to the things we're already doing. So, so maybe we um, can take a break and we'll start getting into the opposition of.
0: Yeah, I would like to get into that um, specifically, Doctor Lyons. <laughs> okay let's I'll, I'll quiz you on that when we get back uh join us for part two and if it's not part two and we put them together then this will be edited out yeah so. it'll
1: put together <laughs> dos coming at you okay hasta luego